welcome to this week's edition of the Energy City Plugged In Podcast, where we discuss the latest in local news, sports, culture, and energy-related stories. The Energy City Plugged In Podcast is sponsored by Estevan Mercury Publications. Joining me this week is Brian Zinchuk, the editor of Pipeline News, Saskatchewan's monthly petroleum newspaper. Brian, it's great to have you with us. Good afternoon. Nice to be doing this again. Yes, it's been uh, about nine months since Brian and I have been able to sit down and talking about the latest in the energy sector. And there's been a lot happening in the energy industry since we last talked of one of the most notable ones came down just recently with uh, SAS Power saying that CCS might not be in the future for them. Uh, for future power production needs. Of course, there's been some backtracking since then. Uh, what was your reaction when you uh, first heard this story out of the CBC? All right, so just provide a little bit of context to that. On Friday, the CEO of uh, SAS Power, Mike Marsh, who I've interviewed a few times, I'm sure you have as well, uh, was speaking to an editorial board of six journalists from CBC, uh, three from Saskatoon, three from Regina, some of them were teleconference. <clears throat> and the discussion included various topics, and one of which was, you know, are you going to recommend uh, future CCS on Boundary Dams Unit 4 and 5? Well, the story that CBC ran shortly thereafter didn't have any direct quotes, but suggested that Marsh was not going to recommend Units 4 and 5. I think the words were highly unlikely. Highly unlikely. Now, uh, you and I, 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 I believe I sent you the story right away, and we jumped mm-hmm. on that like a fat kid on a smart. I think I nearly us. had a heart attack. Will could vouch for the fact, producer Will over there could vouch for the fact that I nearly had a heart attack when I saw that. And, I mean, you're, we're, we're kind of looking at this from two perspectives. So you're writing uh, about this sort of thing from the local perspective for Estevan, and I'm looking at it from the provincial energy perspective. Mm. So we both put in uh, interview requests within, like, the next few minutes to see, or to SAS Power, and... Uh, on Tuesday morning, I had a half-hour conversation with Mike Marsh, who's the pr- president, and I believe you spoke with the, the minister, Dustin minister Duncan. Minister du- du- Dustin Duncan. So we went on at length with this, and uh, I mean, I'll, the story will be coming out in our next Pipeline News for December. It's a little bit a while from now, but basically it comes down to is that, you know, the, the math for CCS, like the money's not, you know, the, the, the math calculus is different now than when it was approved back in 2011. Now, Absolutely. Was, in 2011, he said it was the right decision then. And it still is the right decision for then. But, you know, as for now, uh, natural gas has been in a funk for a very long time. And uh, so we talked extensively about, you know, the future for natural gas and the different options they have. And these decisions have to be made first at SAS Power uh, Executive level and the board, and then you have to go to this uh, Crown Investment Corporation board and then to cabinet. So there's a four-level procedure before any decision is made. Now, one thing I want to point out here is that while Marsh is the CEO of SAS Power, the owner of SAS Power is a province, and the chairman of the board, as it were, for the province is the premier, whoever that premier is. Right now it's Brad Wall, but he won't be here in two months. Now, of course, I did, Premier Wall has been a strong advocate for CCS, as are the five candidates for the SAS party leadership. And that's just where I was going. So I spent uh, the last month interviewing all five candidates about their energy policy. And one of the questions I asked them was about CCS. Do they support it? And to a one, they all do. So whoever is going to be the new Premier, we can expect, unless they decide to change their mind in the next couple months, that they are going to support CCS. 
so uh, there's a and one of the things I talked to Mr. Marsh about was that you know they have their considerations when it comes to things like you know the cost of the fuel source, coal versus natural gas and whatnot. And those are really their only two options, either CCS coal or uh, natural gas. Now they could look at converting uh, the existing uh, boundary dam units into uh, natural gas units, but they wouldn't be what's called combined cycle. They wouldn't be designed to be highly efficient. You're just basically running a generator using uh, steam created from a different type of burner. Instead of having coal going through, you'd have natural gas. And that's what's called a simple cycle. And a simple cycle does not meet the stringent requirements that uh, the government has brought in in regards to uh, emissions controls. In fact, the whole uh, thing about Boundary Dam was that it had to have <coughs> uh, emissions at the level or lower than combined cycle natural gas. And you can't do that if the existing units in Boundary Dam. You'd have to rebuild them or do something or whatever. So, I mean, there's a few options on the table. And we, you know, we discussed, okay, you know, does that mean uh, natural gas here? Does it mean natural, uh, you know, would a person put natural gas at closer to your load sources, such as Regina or Saskatoon or CCS? I mean, and he basically said, I'm, I didn't say we're not going to do CCS. Mm -hmm. So fundamentally... This is a big question. This is a question I've been asking for a long time, is it? Because CCS, from a provincial perspective, is much broader than just having, you know, jobs in Estevan for coal mining, which my next door neighbor is a coal miner. And, you know, my neighbor down the road works for uh, SAS Power. My other neighbor is a coal miner. You know, it's, it's in a broader provincial perspective, the carbon capture allows carbon dioxide to be used for enhanced oil recovery, which is why... The Weyburn field, which started producing in the early 1960s, is now expected to go for about 100 years. Mm -hmm. uh, without that CCS, it would have been pretty much dried up by now. So future carbon capture uh, for Saskatchewan means a much longer-term future for our oil fields, especially the older depleted fields that can be brought back to life. So that's a big impact. And that's something that, from Marsh's perspective, that's not in his playbook. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> and we talked a bit about that because... That's something from a broader provincial standpoint. That's something that, you know, the cabinet has to make those decisions because they also have oil royalties that comes from that. That's not in SAS Power's purview. So the broader discussion is much more around that. Yes. So just uh, so quickly, uh, should people be concerned if they go with natural gas, not only locally, but also from an energy rate perspective because of the volatility of natural gas? Well, let me put it this way. When I lived in North Battleford, <clears throat> excuse me, 12 years ago, I wrote a series of stories uh, about converting my house's uh, mid-efficiency or older furnaces to high-efficiency, 97.5% furnaces. And that's because my power bill back then for a very similar house to what I have now was about $230 a month, uh, averaged throughout the year. My power bill now for natural gas is 40 bucks a month mm -hmm. for a same-size house. Mm -hmm. So... The price of gas, yes, has dropped absolutely tremendously, but it also means that if it can go down, it can go up. And this is what SAS Power has warned about for years and years and years, is that the volatility in the natural gas market had made, up until recent years, had made gas a very wary thing to do. Now, what we have seen in the intervening years is that nat natural gas plants have been built at North Battleford. They're currently building one at, at two, actually, North Battleford, a peaking plant and a, a baseload plant. Uh, one owned by SAS Power, one is uh, contracted. Uh, they're currently building a new one uh, at Swift Current, and they're building them near load centers. That's another long discussion. 
But what it comes down to is that natural gas is largely replacing coal throughout North America. So it's a good question. There's other one other uh, thing about that most people wouldn't realize. Saskatchewan used to produce most of its natural gas from western Saskatchewan. But we haven't drilled a new gas well in years. Like mm-hmm. Zero. My column, in fact, for next month is about that fact. And, and PSAC, uh, the Petroleum Services Association of Canada, isn't expecting a well to be drilled uh, next year either, correct? Exactly. So, so with that, where's that natural gas coming from? It's actually coming from around Estevan. The, the natural gas we have now is mostly associated with oil production, and a lot of it's coming from Estevan. The Directive S10 brought in over half a billion dollars of new gas plants built in this region. So there is local sources of natural gas we can pull from, <coughs> excuse me, without pipelining that gas all over the place. Is that much of a savings? I don't know. Does it help? I mean, is it going to make a big impact on jobs? Uh, not anywhere close to the way uh, mine does. Are you concerned about the future of CCS? Well, let's put it this way. If if CCS is dead, then I'm guessing my house took a $50,000 hit. That sounds about right. And I think the one thing that one of the things that we should point out is that uh, Mike Marsh was talking about just units four and five. Now, who knows what the long-term repercussions will be if there is, if, if they do go with natural gas instead of retrofitting units four and five, but you know he wasn't talking about unit six. He wasn't talking we about. We actually Shand. didn't talk about that. We he didn't did. talk okay. about Shan. We didn't talk about Poplar okay. River. When the, with the initial highly unlikely comment, though, he was alluding to units four and five. That's correct. The other units are really down the road. We're talking a decade down the road Absolutely. before anything really serious happens with them. Uh, potentially, Shand can be run under the current federal legislation. That doesn't mean it can't change next week, but under current federal legislation, Shand can run, I think, till 2042 before it has to be retired. I believe 2030 is the was the goal of the new f- of the liberal government. Yeah. Uh, so, I mean, these things they they have time on these elements. I mean, there's also, and you know, he and I discussed there can be changes in government both provincially and federally. Mm-hmm. Yes, and certainly we we can certainly wager a pretty good guess how a change in the provincial government or a change in the federal government would affect the future of CCS in Canada, given the stances of both the uh, NDP provincially and the Tories federally on CCS. Well, I mean, we already know coal power. where the federal liberals are. They want to kill coal, period. Yep. And uh, under their tenure, Saskatchewan will be the last coal uh, power generation in the country. Uh, so, you know, they're they're getting their way on that. And as for the Saskatchewan provincial NDP, uh, they're not very favored to to, uh, to coal these days. Anyhow, not, regards... they've also been very critical of CCS. Incredibly. <clears throat> so certainly, uh, there's, there's a lot for us to watch for uh, moving forward on this front. Uh, we will ultimately see, uh, probably at the end of this year, more likely early next year, to, we will ultimately see uh, where SAS power and where the provincial government uh, stand on this issue. I think we're actually looking closer to early 2018. Not, I wouldn't. Yeah, I would. I, I would certainly expect it would 17. be early 2018, given the fact there's only about a month left in the year to uh, make this decision. But again, it certainly bears worth watching. Well, fundamentally, that decision will not be made until there's a new premier. That doesn't happen until the end of January. 
All right. Well, thank you very much, Brian. Uh, when we come back, Brian and I will be talking about some of the uh, other issues in the Southeast Saskatchewan oil patch. And welcome back. Uh, joining me once again is Brian Zinchuk, the editor of uh, Pipeline News. Uh, of course, the uh, November edition of Pipeline News came out last week. And one of the big issues that you investigated with it was this uh, whole issue of uh, H2S. It was in the news in uh, late October, and you did a number of stories on it. And what were some of the things that you found? Well, this all stemmed from a series of stories done by what the people behind these stories called it the largest collaboration of Canadian journalism ever, which I kind of doubt given we had things like World War II in the past history. Uh, anyhow, the, it was an investigation by a bunch of journalism students at the University of Regina. Uh, they had collaboration of Concordia, Vin Vic Victoria, and I believe McGill as well as the National Observer, which is a left-wing publication, I believe it's a magazine, uh, Toronto Star, and Global News. So the stories first started coming out around October 1st. There's a series of them. And then a few other stories came out a few weeks later in Ontario uh, regarding the other end of the petroleum industry, the downstream refining end. And uh, the stories here primarily focused on hydrogen sulfide in southeast Saskatchewan, particularly around Oxbow. They were not very uh, flattering. Flattering, yeah. That was, <laughs> I'm trying to find a good word for it, and I mean, it it really uh, was a you know a black mark. And I mean, and there were absolutely issues, okay. And I'm not denying there were issues. In fact, I the the lead person in the lead story in the Toronto Star was Shirley Galloway of uh, Oxbow. Very well-known person in the Southeast region. Yeah, and I've known her for almost nine years now. Yeah. It's kind of surprised that she talked to the Toronto Star before Pipeline News, but I told her that. But I, I also, at, at the end of a student film screening, which yeah, that part of this film that was done as part of a class project on this was about H2S, and they also talked about uh, the Husky River spill and uh, issues up in Western Saskatchewan as well regarding... Uh, land issues and whatnot anyhow i said look i'm going to give you two pages you can say what you want and i'm only going to filter it for uh uh for grammar that's it you say what you say what you want and here you go and i did i gave her 1600 words which to say her piece and then i talked to a bunch of other people i talked to uh i got an emailed response from craig lothian who is uh, the ceo of villanova 4 uh who had got into a bit of a Twitter war over these stories with other people, including Murray Mandrick. Uh, I had a story from the uh, assistant deputy minister, who's the head regulator for this sort of thing, for H2S. I also uh, noted that in all these stories, it had something like 30 or 50 students and journalists working on them. Not one story bothered to mention that everyone who works in the field in the oil patch needs to have H2S alive. And I personally recertified my H2S alive for the fifth time this past spring. So how you can do a series of stories about this deadly gas, which the stories uh, said alluded to the fact that no one really knew about until they wrote about it, uh, how they can do these stories and not mention the fact that everyone who works in the field has to have training in it. So I thought that was important, and I had a story with uh, Enform, which is now Energy Safety Canada, uh, regarding that as well. And then finally, the story... And these stories are available on pipelinenews.ca. They're all posted as of today. Uh, the editorial talks about where this came from, these uh, the impetus for these stories. And my column talks about 
uh, the student film that I attended and the fact that we can't really afford as an industry to let people have reason to criticize us like this. You mentioned issues earlier. What are some of those issues? Well, <clears throat> excuse me. Uh, sure, we had some issues with uh, near her farm. There was some H2S venting that uh, caused one of her family members to uh, to basically get knocked down by H2S. And, I mean, that's inexcusable. It should never happen. Uh, no one wants that. I mean, I, in my column, I talk about the fact when I first moved here nine years ago, I considered buying an acreage. That acreage was right beside some H2S wells, and I decided, well, let's not look at that. So I don't think anyone should have to worry about H2S. I think that uh, the greater society, as I saw in attending the U of R film, has zero tolerance for any of this. And I think as an industry, perhaps we need to have, for our own benefit, zero tolerance. There are technologies that improve H2S uh, disposal, such as while flare stack gets rid of most of it, especially in high winds, it does not get rid of all of it. Uh, I can't remember the exact percentage, but it's, it's a significant percentage that it doesn't get. Whereas technologies such as incinerators, which are much more expensive uh, to operate, get about 99.5%. So I mean, there are ways to deal with some of this. You also mentioned your column as well in this month's edition of Pipeline. Is this one of those that one of those issues that really gives the critics of the energy industry ammo and that the energy industry really has to be uh, cognizant of and 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 prepared to uh, counter? I think the pipeline politics has really opened a lot of people's eyes. I think the uh, opposition to Keystone XL in the United States. Uh, Energy East in Canada, Northern Gateway. I think that's really got the energy industry on the back foot, uh, kind of reeling from all the opposition and anything that gives the anti-oil critics uh, issue is something that they have to be aware of. Now, I talked about this extensively in my editorial, which got posted yesterday, uh, and that is there. these stories about H2S and Saskatchewan, they weren't just about H2S. Okay. In my perspective, they were part of a broader anti-oil movement, and the stories were instigated by a University of Regina professor who suggested to the corporate mapping project, hey, maybe you should look into this, hint, hint, hint wink, 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 and uh, that then went to town with basically finding the worst, most egregious example of issues in Saskatchewan about the oil industry, and then, uh, oh, look how bad it all is. A lot of stories I found were not in context. For instance, the student film talked about spills and all that sort of thing. And a person who wouldn't know any better think, oh my God, there's spills all over the place and they're never cleaned up and the place is just falling apart. When in reality, we have industrial landfills that are filled by vac trucks every day from cleaning this stuff up. And very, 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 very little actually gets away. So there's a lot of context that was missing from all this. Fundamentally, I think that these stories are part of a broader anti-oil campaign, and uh, I get into it in, in pretty good depth of that. And you can find that if you go to pipelinenews.ca or if you go to Facebook and just look up Pipeline News. Excellent. I guess on a more positive note, uh, the oil industry, uh, the, the the price of oil is, is up, and I believe it's been hovering around, at the time of the recording of this podcast, it was around... $57 a barrel, and it's been above 50 for a while. How encouraging is this for the local oil sector? I think, you know, it's been floating on 55, and people are like, okay, hey, 
finally might get a little bit better. Now we saw 57. I think people's eyes start to open up a little bit. Like, wow, there is light at the end of a tunnel. Now, let me put it this way. A year ago, almost to the day, in November, when I was interviewing stories, almost everyone I was talking to, it was like walking in their door and you're just walking into a wake because someone died. I mean, that's how depressed the uh, general sector was because of how the patch was doing and low oil prices in the 30s and whatnot. And some points we saw in 2016, I think it was down to $26. Yeah, early 2016. Yeah, so, you know, and, and floating the 30s and low 40s. And I tell you, $57 is a hell of a lot better than $37. Mm-hmm. So uh, I think there's some disturbing issues in that, you know, some companies may be slowing down their drilling in December, but be going gangbusters in January. And I don't understand the logic of that because... Uh, there's going to be a great demand for people. There will be a shortage. Several people told me that yesterday for people in oil patch for January, February, and half of March, and then nothing to break up again. So, you know, it's going to be a lot, real hard ride here for the next three months because all of a sudden people are going to have some money to spend and we won't have the people to do it. Mm-hmm. Are you optimistic? Is the mood out there optimistic that this is going to continue to climb or are they worried that it's going to slide back down to 50 or below $50 a barrel? Uh, or is this maybe a, a holding point for a while? No one's told me that in recent weeks that I've spoken to, no one's already brought up the fact that, oh, it's going to go down again. Uh, one of the things that I've been told for a long time now is we need oil to stay over 50, consistently over 50 for several months, at least three months before companies start spending again. We're now at that position. We're a few months over 50, getting 57, getting close to 60. Maybe we'll see 60. Wow, if we see that. Yeah. Maybe almost like popping champagne corks compared to what we've seen in the last three years. You know, and a few years ago, if you would have said $60 oil, most people would have been crying. Yeah. And now it's like, you know, like it's just like you say, you get open champagne, but it's going to be no name brand because we got it at Superstore. <laughs> I probably would prefer then to just go with a nice bottle of wine from somewhere or a good growler of beer. But at least it's certainly a good sign that we are starting to see the uh, we're, we're starting to see it back on the climb. And when the price of oil goes up, yes, there are some challenges associated with it, but it's good news for everybody. Well, let me talk about that for one second here, because, you know, last year at this time, everyone was depressed and there was no new businesses, no new anything. And I had spent the better part of a decade writing uh, every edition, you know, new businesses here, new companies starting Absolutely. up Absolutely. And there was nothing to be had in 2016. My next edition is focusing on Estevan, and almost all the stories are going to be on new businesses starting up in Estevan. Excellent. So that's good news. Absolutely. Well, thank you very much for joining us, Brian. It's always great to have you in here to talk about the latest in the uh, oil and energy sectors. Uh, the Ed- Energy City Plugged In podcast is sponsored by Estevan Mercury Publications. I want to thank our producer, Will Acri, for his work on today's episode. I want to thank Brian for coming in to join us with the information that he always brings. Thank you very much for listening, and we'll be back next time.